You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as, as an army with banners? She. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire sent me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Others. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. He. Why should you look upon a Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon, by the gates of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple, a king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. She. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in fruit. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh my beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Uh, thank you, Russ. We are going to dive into this text together. It's a long one. We covered two chapters there in the Song of Songs, but it all kind of fits together, I think, as you'll see. Now, as some of you are aware, uh, my wife Jen and I, we are fans of the musical artist Sarah Groves. Perhaps you've, you've heard of her, listened to some of her songs. One of her songs is called A Different Kind of Happy, or Different Kinds of Happy, pardon me. And in this song, what Groves is doing is she's reflecting on the differences between young love and mature love. She's looking back on the early days of her own marriage and comparing it with the present. And during the bridge, she sings the following lines. This is what she says. Better than our promises 
is the day we got to keep them. I wish those two could see us now. They never would believe that there are different kinds of happy, different kinds of happy. And what Groves is alluding to in her song is that on the day when you make promises before God and family and friends on your wedding day, you can't and you don't know in what ways you'll be called to keep them, in what ways you'll be called to live them out. You make promises one day, but then other days come when you have to keep them. And it's usually on the harder days, uh, on the unexpectedly difficult ones, when dreams don't work out, when, when love wears thin. Those are the days when promises hold you in your relationship. And Groves argues that keeping promises, what it does is it actually leads to a new kind of happiness, but a different kind of happiness. It's not a simple happiness, not the happiness of youth, but a, a kind of complex happiness. And here's why I reference that, because we're at the point in the Song of Songs where there was discord in the relationship. If you were here last week or if you listened to it, you may remember Frankie talked about how they had, they had mismatched desire and it led to different kinds of conflict. And this week, I think the Song of Songs is trying to teach us how to make love last. I think in poem form, what we have here is wisdom from God on how marriages and how relationships persevere over time. One of the tricky parts to reading poetry is there's no sense of time to most of these poems. Does chapter 6, does what we read today, does it come uh, days after chapter 5 or does it come years later? We aren't told. But I think there's a decent gap of time. Maybe weeks, maybe months, I don't know. And And I'll explain why I believe this to be the case as we kind of go here. But today's focus, no matter what you believe about how far apart these poems are, today's focus is on enduring and maturing love. How does love continue to grow beyond its initial spark? How does love last beyond the the head over heels days? I want to take our text in three parts. First, we'll just talk about growing love. Second, we'll talk about mutual sexuality. And third, a word for singles. Because there's a a warning and a word to singles at the end of our text today. In chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, there's this poem, right? It begins with a poem where a man praises the woman. Let's briefly look at what he says to her. Verse 6, he says, she's as beautiful as Tizra, as lovely as Jerusalem. Now, why, what does that mean? What, what's, a, what's a Tizra? Well, it was a city in northern Israel. It was, it was the capital of the northern kingdom originally. King Omri, one of the Israelite kings, moved the capital to Samaria at one point. But Tizra was renowned as, as this beautiful, well-built city. And Jerusalem, of course, is the same. It's a city renowned for its architecture, its, its strength, and its beauty. This man is saying this is how he sees his beloved. She, she's, she's awesome. She's this lovely city and as awesome, as he, as he says, as an army with banners. Not something we normally think of as a compliment, but the feeling you get when you see an army you know, before battle. There, there was a kind of awe. A kind of, it kind of takes your breath away. All of the shining armor, you know, the, the flags or whatever fluttering in the breeze. This is how he feels when he sees her, this kind of awe. Yet in verse 5, he tells us her eyes still overwhelm him. They make him tremble. Even though we assume they're, they're married at this point, they're still learning to love each other. And her, to hold her gaze, to stare deeply into her eyes, makes him slightly uncomfortable. He can't live without this woman. But as we saw last week, living with her, you know, not always comfortable or easy to, uh, as well. He goes on to say her hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the side of a mountain all life and and movement and vitality. Her teeth, in verse 6, are like clean sheep, freshly washed, each having a twin. Her cheeks are like pomegranate halves, and pomegranate, of course, is very uh, red and ripe. He says in verse 8, you can stack up 60 queens and 80 concubines, which is a a woman who's a a part of a royal harem, and, and unmarried women without number. You can stack up all of these, and he would still choose her. 
And in fact, in verse 9, it's the young women and these queens and these concubines who are rising up to call her blessed. Now, does any of this sound familiar? If, if you've been around for our series, any parts of this poem ring any bells for you? Well, I think it should because he said some of these things before. In chapter 4, he had a long poem where he compared her hair to a flock of goats leaping down a mountain. And he compared her teeth to sheep that, that have twins. And he talked about eyes behind a veil. And he talked about cheeks and pomegranates. In short, there's all kinds of repetition between this poem and the one in chapter 4. And in fact, there's the same number of lines in this poem as there was in chapter 4. It's the exact same length. The only difference or the main difference between the two poems is that this one is much less erotic. He doesn't mention her breasts. He doesn't use any euphemisms for sex. What does this repetition teach us? What, what can we kind of glean from, from what's going on here? I got three things. The first is that relationships and marriages are about more than sex. Now, Song of Songs has had plenty to say about it. We'll return to it in part two. But the emphasis here is on all the other things that he appreciates about her. In fact, in verse 4, when he says, you're as beautiful as Tizra, my love, that, that title, my love, commentators think that's not talking about romantic love. That's a kind of, uh, of friendship and companionship kind of word he's using. And when we read that alongside verse 9, where he says, uh, he, where it's clear that rather that this man loves this woman, not because he's just sexually interested in her, but because they have a deep, profound friendship. She's his life companion. She's unique. The only one who could fit that role. Maybe let me put it this way. If you look back at verse 8, you can imagine there's two doors to choose from. And behind door number one was a life of sexual adventure and quantity. 140 or more different women or men, yet the experiences and relationships are somewhat shallow and fleeting. That's behind door number one. Behind door number two is one woman or one man, but yet uniquely fitted for you, and the quality of love, friendship, and companionship is extremely high, what would you choose? Well, culturally, the message is go for quantity. Go, go for experience. You only live once. Why would you confine yourself to one person? Try as many things as you can. Scripturally, though, that's the foolish choice. Not only is it opposed to God's law and desire for us, I think the wisdom literature would say it's not going to make you happy. Wisdom is all about choosing what leads to a richer, healthier life in all of its dimensions. And far better, the Song of Songs is saying, to have one partner fit for you than 140 experiences or more that leave in the morning. We might even summarize it this way. Quantity of partners does not equal quality of love. The song would tell you the wise person understands there must be a profound friendship and companionship to marriage. Sexual desire, sexual attraction, that's important, but it's not everything. Second, relationships are like gardening, and they require maintenance. Now, at this point, you're like, yeah, you shrug your shoulders. Everyone understands that relationships take work. You know, we're not breaking any new ground here. But I do think gardening is a helpful uh, metaphor for relationships, because gardens aren't static. Like, they're, they're constantly changing. And all of us millennials who are obsessed with succulents or whatever, like outdoor gardens are a lot harder than that. They require a lot of repetitive activity. If you've had a garden, you know you can, you can go away for a week on vacation and come back and be like, oh man, like this thing is just out of control. It needs to be weeded again. It needs, needs to be watered. It's just sort of fallen apart because you left it alone for a week. Gardens don't stay the same if you neglect them. They fade. And in the same way, the relationships are not static. They are either moving towards health or away from health. 
Now look, why does the man repeat himself in this poem? He's already told her these things. Why does he need to say it again? Well, because relationships, they're not complicated, but they're also not easy. What they require is for you to give yourself away over and over. You can't tell him or her, you can't tell your beloved once that you love them and assume like, you know, that just stands. You must repeat your love to them. You can't compliment them once for their beauty and think, well, until I contradict that, you know, that that still counts. No, no. If you're giving love through acts of service or gifts or quality time, whatever way you're kind of giving love, that's a gift that must be given ongoingly. The relationship is a garden. It must be cultivated. In a similar way, I think it's important to know, particularly if you're in the early or first stages of a relationship, that you're not going to be married to the same person your whole life. I mean, it may be the same human But your beloved is going to change, and love must change with it. Just like a garden doesn't stay the same, but in the, you know, it grows buds at one point, and it flowers at a certain point, love has its seasons as well. Let me tell you a brief story about that. Once upon a time, there was a young woman who loved a young man, and he loved her back. And they both worked for a Christian parachurch ministry, and both were content in that ministry. They loved it. They both felt called to it. And the young woman, while they were dating, told the young man she never wanted to be married to a pastor. And they dated, and they got engaged, and they got married on a rainy day in July. And seven years after getting married, Jen watched me get ordained to be a pastor. And what she didn't, quote, sign up for, she's in the nursery, so you can't even look at her right now to see her reaction. Uh, You know, what she didn't sign up for in dating... And in fact, what she didn't want while dating, it came true. She was now a pastor's wife, you know, surprise. Uh, but, but here's the thing. When we got married, I didn't know I wanted to be a pastor either. In fact, I was actually pretty sure I was not going to be a pastor. I wasn't tricking her. I wasn't like, I didn't cackle wildly when she said I do, because like, oh, I've got her now, and now I'm going to seminary tomorrow or whatever. No, no, pastoring was sort of a surprise to both of us. See, as we think about how love lasts, how to cultivate love, I think sometimes we get caught up in this myth of compatibility, where we think on some level, well, love will last as long as I married the right person, as long as I was compatible with them, but your right person, I mean, whatever that means, they're going to change. <laughs> like, like marriage changes them. Kids, if you have them, that changes them. Life changes them. Sociologists, you know, smart people who study marriage think that if, if you live long enough and uh, couples will go through at least four, through five, four to five stages of marriage that are all marked by major changes. So you're, you're not going to be married to the same person you were when you were, you know, 21 or, or whatever. The couple has entered a new stage and he's reaffirming his love for her. He's learning to love her in this new era. And the third thing we learn here is that conflict and difficulty can lead to deepen love. See, how can love last? Well, it lasts when conflict is dealt with in a healthy way. Remember last week, there was difficulty, conflict in the relationship, but here it's kind of being dealt with. The conflict does not drive them further apart. It pushes them closer together. He reaffirms, you're the only one for me. You're the one I want. No other queens, no other concubines he'd rather have. She is the unique one fitted for him. I think those of us who are more averse to conflict sometimes hope for less conflict in the relationships we do have. And I think there's actually a way to have a marriage with zero conflict. Do you want to know the secret? The secret is to be married to a person who does not care about the marriage. (laughs) It's a terrible secret. It's not a very good one. But really, as long as you have two people who care about a relationship and want to make it better, there will inevitably be some conflict. 
inevitably, because you have different ideas and expectations and hopes and plans for what a great marriage looks like. And you have external difficulties that are coming in, and you're, you're dealing with those as well. But at their best, difficulties, conflict, they force us to grow. Now, they can separate us too, but at their best, they can force us to grow. And what we see in chapter 6 is this reaffirmation of love from him to her. He repeats himself. Okay, let's move to part two, mutual sexuality. Now, just before we get there, verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6 are sort of confusing. And, I, and I, I, the woman is like out for a walk. She finds herself sort of lost. Uh, she has to be called back by the friends. I, I read a lot of different opinions on these verses I don't really know what's going on. That's, like, that's my uh, honesty moment. Uh, and so we're just going to move along. I'm not sure how it kind of fits with what comes before or what comes afterwards. You know, maybe in 20 years we'll do this series again and I'll be smarter and kind of figure out what, what's actually going on here. But what is clear is that in chapter 7, verse 1, they're back together. From the poem that follows, it's pretty clear that, that, that the man is gazing lovingly at his beloved, telling her what he loves about her. And in contrast to the poem that came before, this one's much more suggestive, has many as descriptions. And as you'll see, he actually describes her body in a different order from the two poems that came before. Remember where he previously started when he was complimenting her? He'd nearly always start with general things about her, and then he'd start with her hair and work his way down. Here he doesn't do that. Here he starts at the bottom and works his way up. Let's look at what he says. He first talks about her beautiful feet, which are in sandals. The language used for feet, actually in Hebrew, has a sense of movement, has a sense of even of dancing. And some have speculated, well, maybe they're at a place where she's, uh, he's watching her dance or whatever. Uh, th- that may be true. I don't think the text forces that kind of understanding. He might just think her feet are pretty or he likes the sandals she's wearing that day. Um, it, whatever is going on, uh, he, he likes her feet. But then he moves upward. Second half of verse 1, he compliments in turn her rounded thighs, her navel, and her belly. Now, in Hebrew, the word translated thighs, uh, sometimes, I think NIV and a few other translations use the word hips. And rounded hips, that seems to fit a bit better than rounded thighs. I don't think it exactly matters, but what he's saying is he likes the way they look. He, he likes the way, or he says that they're the handiwork of, this, of a master builder. And he then compliments her navel, seems unusual. Some have suggested, well, he, this is a euphemism for a, a more sexual part. Maybe he's making a double entendre, you know, in Hebrew. We, we, we aren't exactly sure. And then he compliments her or compares her belly to a heap of wheat. Now, this is one of those times where I'm going to recommend against using this one. But, but it should be noted here for us to understand what's going on. The modern Western conception of beauty is just that. It's modern and it's Western. <laughs> beauty standards, they change over time. The ancient Near East, in general, considered women and men who were a little bit heavier to be more desirable. See, extra weight in a world without, you know, uh, grocery stores and stuff like that indicated that you were wealthy, indicated that you were well-fed, and in the case of women, normally indicated that you had the ability to bear children. Skinny people, they were viewed with suspicion. It was generally the poor people who, who were skinnier. A belly like a heap of wheat. Sounds kind of funny to us, but it was a compliment in that culture. Now, what does this man love about this woman? He's telling her, I love all the parts in the middle. And he doesn't feel awkward about telling her that. He may be hinting at sexual pleasure. He may be talking about fertility. He may just be loving all of her for who she is. He then moves on in a similar description of something we've heard before to describe her breasts like two fawns. I said last time that he said this, that, that fawns give the, the sense of playful shyness. Her neck, he says, it's like an ivory tower, strong, beautiful, regal even. 
Her eyes are like famous pools of water. Her nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. Again, sounds insulting. But he, but he says, her, your features are strong, powerful. She's a well-put-together woman. And her head is a crown, like, like, the, like the Mount of Carmel. And her hair are like the clothes of a king. I think it's important to note at this point that this poem sounds a bit over the top. You're like, I'd never, t- if you're married, like, I'd never talk this way to my spouse. I think what's important, though, is that you are attracted to your beloved. She doesn't need to be Helen of Troy. He doesn't need to be Achilles or some other Greek god or half god or whatever. What you need is to be attracted to them for who they are. Now, what's different about this poem is what follows. Because now the man honestly states his desire. He tells her she's beautiful, she's pleasant, she's full of delights. She's like a palm tree with her breasts being like its clusters. And what does he want? He says he wants to climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. This is about as blunt as a Song of Songs gets. If you're like, I only showed up for this week, I'm visiting. This is, this is as blunt as it gets right here. This is as far as we go in terms of the song being suggested and sexually candid. But the man likes what he sees, and he honestly expresses his sexual desire for her. How does she respond? If you look at verse 10, she says, I am my beloved's. I belong to him. His desire is for me. She's agreeing. I'm all yours. It's a beautiful picture of the mutuality of marriage where one partner pursues and the other lovingly accepts. But now look at verse 11. Now she's the one speaking. And she invites him to go out of the city, to go into the fields, to lodge in some villages, to visit some vineyards. And at the end of verse 12, she tells him, or she promises, there I will give you my love. And according to verse 13, she says she has laid up for him, she has prepared for him some new and old fruit. Now what kind of invitation is is she giving? She wants to go on vacation together. She wants, let's get away from our responsibilities. Let's spend some time alone together. She's on like a wine tasting tour or whatever. Or they're going to some village that they've never been to before. But she's also pretty clear. It's not just for adventure. It's not just for travel. It's not just for new experiences. She says, let's make make sure there's time in the bedroom for new and old things to happen. Again, this this is the bluntest part. But she's saying, let's get away to spend time on our marriage. And then in chapter 8, the first few verses, she wishes she could show him public affection. She wants to kiss him outdoors where no one would, would condemn them. And she imagines in verse 2, taking her beloved to her parents' house, spending time there together. She imagines this familiar posture of his left hand under her head and his right hand around her body. And then for the third time, we'll, we'll get to in a minute, this admonition not to stir up love. But what do we learn from all this sort of blunt talk about sexuality? We learn that there must be a mutuality to sex inside of marriage. Look, marriage is inevitably, you've been married for five minutes, you'll figure out, marriage is inevitably involves mismatch of desire. Like on some level, in some way, it might be frequency of sex, it might be the context for sex, it might be a hundred other things, but there will be mismatches. But what we see between this man and this woman is that both of them are contributing to their sexual life together. He compliments and straightforwardly asks for sex. She plans a vacation and, you know, and invites him along. But we see this complementarity. Both partners are bringing different things to make it work. It's not a strict turn-taking. It's not some kind of forced arrangement. It seems, as far as we can read this, they're joyfully offering things to each other. You know, sometimes in a marriage, if one partner has a much higher sexual drive, it can feel like they are doing all the work or carrying all the burden of the sexual part of the relationship. And if you've been in that position, you know that's exhausting, it's difficult, kind of hurts your feelings sometimes. 
How much better it is when both spouses figure out what they can bring, what they can offer to each other. She knows maybe that the context and quality time are, are very important, and therefore a vacation, you know, is what's needed. Maybe he knows that she needs to hear him express his love and affection for her. What about you, if you're married? How can you figure this out in your relationship? Well, you probably have to talk about it with your spouse. <laughs> and I know it's, it's going to be awkward. Your cheeks may turn red or whatever. But it's really essential. And I know that for myself, it was hard to talk about sex early in our marriage. I've counseled enough couples to know it's not just me. Maybe it's something about growing up in church and trying to push off these things or to not, you know, not focus on them too much when you're single. I'm not sure. But when you get married... It's really important to have honest conversations about how things are going, how both of you are contributing. And look, part of the reason we're doing a sermon series like this is because I think these are conversations we need to have but don't want to. Look, I'd rather preach about something different, but, but these passages, they're in the scriptures because I think they're important. So if you need to get started, married couples, you can ask yourself or your partner, what am I bringing to this relationship in terms of sexuality? How can I contribute? There are a lot of different ways. What's my role? It doesn't need to look the same as your partner, but what can you bring? The Song of Songs insists, both husband and wife, you participate sexually with each other. There's a mutuality. It's a group project. You want the marriage to last over the long term. You have to work on this together. Now, part three, a word to singles. The passage ends with the familiar refrain. It's the third time it's come up in the Song of Songs. Don't stir up love until it's time. And as I've argued from the beginning, I think this whole book is part of the wisdom literature, and I think the Song of Songs is primarily intended for those who are unmarried. Now, if you are married, I think it's great. It can give you lots of help. But if you are single, <laughs> you're like, what am I supposed to take away from today? What am I supposed to do with this? How can I live wi or think wisely about love, but also not awaken it too early? It's a really fine line to walk. Let me suggest a couple things. First is that marriage and sex do not equal fulfillment. I think it's important, and I think it's really easy to wonder, after reading a passage like this, you might wonder, am I missing out as a single person? If I don't have access to this kind of relationship, if I never have access to this kind of relationship, will some part of my humanity be left unfulfilled? I think it's a really good question. Now, the Bible's answer to your question is that, yes, it is possible to be fulfilled as a single person. It is possible to redirect your relational energy into, into family and friendships and other places. It's not an easy path. That's, that doesn't answer the emotional question. But there are good examples here and there in the scriptures and in church history. I mean, we don't often say it this way, but Jesus was a virgin. He lived a fulfilling life. The Apostle Paul says, not having a spouse, not having a family, it does free you up to give more of your attention to the kingdom of God. So yes, you may never experience sex. That's a possibility. And I think we need to be frank about that. But in the new heavens and new earth, married people will be more like single people rather than the other way around. The Apostle Paul has this promise where he's like, oh yeah, in the age to come, you're not going to marry or be given in marriage the way you are now. See, I think we commonly view, or the common view in culture of sex is, is that it's a biological appetite on par with hunger, thirst, or sleep. But I don't think that's exactly right. Because a person cannot live without food or drink, but you can live without sex. Not that it's easy, I'm just saying it's possible. God created us in such a way that sex in the, in the scriptures is categorized as a blessing, not as a requirement to be human. 
So I guess what I'm saying, if you're single, you need to work neither to over-desire nor under-desire marriage. Marriage and sex, it will not solve all your problems. It will not be all that you expect it to be. But neither should marriage be despised or put off unnecessarily. Fulfillment, fulfillment of, of, of being fulfilled as a human is a function of your life in Christ. And marriage and sex do not equal fulfillment. But the second thing I want to talk about is this, is that living a life without sex brings both temptations and possibilities. See, if you're following the historic Christian teaching that singleness does mean sexual celibacy, I want to point out two dangers and one possibility that attend such a life. See, one path that that, uh, those who wish to get married and have sex but cannot is that they end up becoming bitter and resentful. And you might call that the path of anger. See, you have this thing that you really, really want and you feel like you've been made with a desire for it, yet for some reason you cannot find a relationship that works. And some people in this scenario find themselves getting mad at God or getting mad at the world and sometimes getting mad at the opposite sex. And at the extreme end, at the very end of the path of anger is what we've, we've, uh, we've come to call the involuntary celibate or the incel movement. And it's composed almost entirely of frustrated young men but sometimes the response to a life without sex is just deep and profound anger and bitterness. And I'd warn you as your pastor to be aware of of, of the roots of bitterness and anger lest they grow up and poison your faith. So that's the first danger. The second danger, the second path when faced with a life without sex is to try and find an an alternate. I've known a number of young Christian men and women who were single for a number of years and they were sort of living in line with God's commands on their life. They were you know, uh, patiently looking for a Christian spouse. But as time passed and they moved into their late 20s or their 30s or beyond, some of them gave up and just found sort of a nice non-Christian person to marry. And I think that's a real temptation that you feel like, well, I've looked around and, I, and I've been at church and, and there's just no real possibilities for marriage. And at that point, it's really easy to lose heart. And find an alternative. But God's clearly commanded us to marry within the faith, to only marry within Christians. So I would I would plead with you and I would I would urge you to watch out for this temptation of finding an alternative when things don't work out in the in the short to medium term. The third path, which is the possibility, is what I would call acceptance. And acceptance means that you move towards trusting God that this is what He has for you, at least right now. Acceptance does not mean passivity, doesn't mean giving up. But it does mean that you lean your life up against God and you trust him for the support and help and love that might otherwise come from a spouse. And as I mentioned, as I kind of quoted earlier, a life of acceptance can lead to greater possibilities of service in the kingdom of God. It can free you from some earthly concerns. I think there are great possibilities for single people who walk the path of acceptance. Now we need to close, but let me just say, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, Paul says that Jesus Christ became to us uh, wisdom from God, along with righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And what does that mean? What Paul means is that Jesus didn't just save us, didn't just forgive us. Like, he did do that, but he also became for us um, divine wisdom. He set us on a new path of wisdom. The, The wisdom that created the world, the wisdom that assembled your body, has come to teach us how to live. So what we understand is when we we enter this realm of relationships and sex and marriage and singleness, um, all of that is included. 
the way we resolve conflict, everything else under the sun, the God who redeemed us and the God who forgave us and the God who made us right with himself, uh, he has given us all we need to walk in wisdom before him. So my brief and simple urge to you this morning would be to do that, to listen to his voice, to hear him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you, and we are grateful for this, uh, this text that you've put in your scriptures for us to read and understand and to reflect on. I pray that we would take it seriously as not just pious advice, not just sort of uh, wisdom from someone who's a little bit older for us, but as divine wisdom from the God who made all things, that we would receive it and believe it and live by it. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.